added time to catch up for being able to talk to one another. So, what do you desire? What is the longing of your heart? I know, I've asked these questions before. What do you desire? What is the longing of your heart? In this summer of renewal, and specifically this month, the renewal of ourselves and our relationship with God, we continue to press into the practices and habits that will form our desire, that will form the longing of our heart to be for God and His kingdom. This past week, my son and I were in Toronto, and if you were with us the first week that I preached in June, I showed you a couple pictures of uh, Toronto, one of Dundas Square, which is like the Times Square of Toronto. Uh, By the way, we arrived on the day of the Toronto Raptors party uh, celebration. That was quite something. I've been to Toronto uh, 15 times on these trips, and I've never seen that many people. Of course, when a million and a half people come into the city for a celebration, it kind of makes a difference. But uh, in that time, we were in Dundas Square, and then we were within this church that I showed you that is right in the heart of this really consumeristic area. And then there's two other churches that actually I was reminded of on the trip that are like the church in the shadows. One is the church that I call the Louis Vuitton church, because when you look at it, you see this church, Church of the Redeemer, with Louis Vuitton emblazoned over it because there's a Louis Vuitton store right next to that church. Uh, nothing wrong with Louis Vuitton, I guess, and, but it's still there. And, it, and it's sidewalks that are made of granite. Granite which my friend who does uh, reconstructive or restoration work in homes was telling me that each strip from the the edge of the street to the front of the store was probably, he said, minimum 1,000, more likely 3,000. Each strip. Just crazy. I'm like, who needs a granite sidewalk? Well, obviously Bloor Street in Toronto does. Uh, So that's just the way it is there. And then there's another church that is just dwarfed by these condos that have arisen over the years. It's called Sanctuary. It's a beautiful church that has an incredible impact in the community. And they have been offered uh, millions for their property. Not only did a group offer to buy them property, but offered then to buy them another church in a different part of town, offered to renovate that church for them. And they said no, because our core community are the street people of Toronto, and we can't move out here and be who we're meant to be as the people of God. It's a beautiful church. These three churches, are we, we've coined this phrase, kind of church of the shadows, that, that just stand as light in the midst of not necessarily automatically evil consumerism, but symbols of consumerism and more. And I was reminded afresh, even having preached on it just three weeks ago, that all the pretty things want to steal our hearts away. That there are so many things in our culture that lead to idolatrous desires of anything and everything but God. And so we need practices and habits that form our desire for God and our longing for God so that we don't fall into idolatry. David Benner, I quoted this two weeks ago, but I'll share it with you again. Every idolatrous desire, that is, everything that we love and desire more than God tends ultimately to diminish our humanity and damage our soul. It's a reminder there that idolatry hurts us. In contrast, a desire for God leads to fulfillment of that longing, enhancement of our being. Hunger for God will not go unanswered because it is the gift from God. So since desire is good, and at the heart of who we are, our desires need to be nurtured and cultivated. And what will do that? 
spiritual practices, sacred rhythms, as Ruth Haley Barton calls them. They will form and purify our desire for God because they create the conditions for spiritual transformation to take place. And so as Elizabeth said, if you've not gotten a copy of Sacred Rhythms yet, catch up. Read whatever chapter catches your fancy first if you don't want to read in order. But take time to think about what it is for you to create the condition of your heart for God's transformation to come. Two weeks ago, we began with the spiritual practice of prayer, talking about how that forms our desires for God. And this week, we come to the scriptures. Our desire for God to be above all other desires is cultivated through our engagement in the scriptures as our communion and our communication with God through the scriptures brings renewal. So our desire for God is formed as we spend time in the scriptures, but it's because as we engage in the scriptures, we commune with God in the scriptures and we communicate with God in the scriptures. God communicates with us and we communicate with God back. So let me ask you as we begin, what's your engagement with the scriptures like? Or maybe even more behind that, what's been your journey with the scriptures in your relationship with God? How do you view the scriptures? Do you see the Bible as the rule book for life? A massive book filled with do's and don'ts for Christians to obey. Do you see it as the Christian guide to living? As a book that's like a life manual for those who follow Jesus. Do you see it as a textbook? A large book with books within the whole that's supposed to be studied and examined. Broken down, parsed out for its teaching and truth. Do you see it as a story? With lots of other stories within. But overall, recognizing that it's the story of God's love for God's creation. With insight for how you fit in that story. Or do you see it as a place to go to connect and commune with God as an opportunity to know God and be known by God, but in a communing way, almost more like a book of prayer? How has your view of the Bible maybe even evolved over the years? I ask these questions because as I reflect on my understanding of the scriptures and what it is and what it's for, I see a journey that has included really all of these different viewpoints. Admittedly, there was a season actually where I really struggled to read the Bible. I struggled pretty significantly to read the Bible, and it happened to be at a time when I was an associate pastor on staff at a church and basically preached every week, (laughs) which can be a little bit problematic when you're kind of wrestling with what you think of the Scriptures. So I found a home, particularly in the Gospels and in the Psalms, and was able to do that. But I realized that part of my struggle with the Scriptures in that time was because I was working through the various viewpoints I had had of the Scriptures and some of the ways they had locked me in to missing what God wanted to show me through them. Here's what I mean. So in my early years, uh, I just started reading the Bible. The very first Bible I ever got, I went through and I saw that other people highlighted the Bible. And so I was like six or seven years old, not 16 or 17. And I went through and I circled my name. And you know what? My name's there a lot. Like in like Samuel and Kings, like it's kind of cool because your name's there a lot. Uh, And that's what I kind of thought it was for. And then eventually I wanted to understand more of what was going on. So I was pretty nerdy. Around 11 years old, I was reading the Bible with a commentary. Uh, That may be a clue to what I do today. But anyway, uh, it was really interesting to me to understand background and and context and such. 
Then as I got into high school, I think I really started to see the Bible as this guidebook, this more manual for living. I think that was a combination of the way my Christian school taught me about the scriptures, and uh, as well as what I just kind of felt like maybe I needed. But interestingly enough, I also, in that guidebook and manual, I found myself reading Paul's letters a lot and reading uh, James over and over, even though it hits you like a two-by-four sometimes in the head. Uh, and funny enough, I, I'm not sure why, I, I didn't find the manual for life to be spending a lot of time reading the Gospels about how Jesus lived, which might be a commentary again on some of the upbringing I had in the Christian school I was in. Not negatively, but like maybe a little bit of a missing piece, I would say. And then as I got into college and seminary, I became a Bible major, and then I went to seminary. And so what did the Bible become? Became a textbook. Became a textbook. Now, I was fortunate in that I did not feel like my seminary experience was a cemetery experience, as the joke goes. Uh, but instead, seminary was very life-giving for me. But it was a textbook. We, we were to understand it. We were to get beneath the text. We were to get into the author's intent. We were to get into the context of the culture. We were to parse it out, even grammatically, as I learned Greek and Hebrew. And, and so it was very much in this vein. And then in that difficult season, as I said, my focus went to Jesus and the Psalms because I could relate to the Psalms. And because then I came back to Jesus and was like, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, it would make sense I just read about Jesus and what it means to live like Jesus. But out of that difficult season, two forms of engaging the scriptures emerged for me that informed the older ways I had engaged it, brought life back to those, as well as brought life and light to my connection with the scriptures in the present. And the first was that the scriptures are God's story. I'm not sure, again, like maybe how I missed this, but it just wasn't an emphasis in some of the contexts that I was in. If we actually look even at uh, a Christian bookstore or a Christian online, like um, CBD, we notice what about the Bible? There's a lot of talk about the Bible as story. Some of you may be familiar with the story that Max Lucado put together, or Walter Wengren's versions of the Bible called the Book of God and Jesus and Paul, where there's more extrapolation into the story of, of Scripture and even written in a, a little bit, almost like a historical fiction type of way on purpose, not to try and, and replace the inspiration of Scripture, but to emphasize the story of Scripture. Eugene Peterson's work previous to this in the message was to put it in more uh, friendly language you might say, to emphasize the sense of story. And so over the past decade or so, this emphasis of story has been so important for me to, to recognize Scripture in this way, so that when I see it as maybe a textbook that I do want to go dig into and learn something and study and find out about, or when I look at it as maybe something to teach me about what it means to live in this world as a follower of Jesus, I keep it in the context of the story. Let me just show you this image of the story of God as I would come to understand it. And we'll talk actually more about this in August because it will lead us into our understanding of God's mission in the world. But the, uh, the watermark figure that you maybe can lightly see there is, first of all, the uh, Celtic sign of the Trinity. Because the story of God begins with the fact that God is triune. God, in what we might call infinity past, if you can even call it that, uh, has been existing as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a story of relationship. And out of that story of relationship, of love, of giving, receiving, and sharing love, God created. And we read this in Genesis 1 and 2, where God comes down and creates in the world. But then we have the fall and rebellion in Genesis 3 through 11. And the story of Genesis 3 through 11 
gives us not only individual rebellion, but also corporate rebellion as we look at the story of Noah, we look at the story of the Tower of Babel. So then God calls a people together in Genesis 12, named through Abram and then ultimately Abraham, and ultimately then through the people of Israel. And this propels the story forward to Jesus. And we see this obviously in the Gospels as we look at Jesus in the cross and the resurrection and actually even then the ascension because in the ascension, we then are left with God saying, Jesus saying, it's good that I go away so that the Spirit can come and the Spirit can send you out. So we, we have the people of God, first of all, being called together as the people of Israel so they can demonstrate the difference of who Yahweh is. But then in the Spirit's coming after Jesus, we have the people of God sent out. And one day we looked forward to Revelation 21 and 22 when the new heavens and the new earth will come down, as Revelation 22 says. Much like the original creation. And we fit in that story on the other side of the arrow of Acts. That's where we fit. So the story of God became context for me to think, oh, if if this is, if this scripture is teaching me about living as Jesus, where do I fit in the story? When I think about scripture to study it in, in a form almost like a textbook to understand, okay, what's going on with Moses in this? It's, it's fitting in the story. What's happened, what's going to happen, and where is it now? It gives me an understanding for the do's and don'ts of the commands of Scripture to see them not just as in a vacuum, but to understand why they're there. Oh, Leviticus actually has a place in the story, and it's really important. And now it makes sense, and how now I want to understand it in the context of the story. So this was really significant for me. But the second form of engagement that I was introduced to, and that we're going to spend the bulk of our time with today, was Lectio Divina or the sacred reading of Scripture. The moving of Scripture from me reading the Scriptures to the Scriptures reading me. This is how uh, Ruth Haley Barton defines Lectio Divina and sacred rhythms. It's an approach to the Scriptures that sets us up to listen for the Word of God spoken to us in the present moment. Lectio Divina is a practice of divine reading that dates back to the early mothers and fathers of the Christian faith. She goes on to explain in her chapter in the Sacred Rhythms that Lectio is a way of moving beyond just the cognitive. And when I reflect back on on much of my time in the Scriptures, even as an 11-year-old reading the Bible with a commentary, I'm very grateful for that time. I look back and I can read lots of scriptures now out of context, and I I just know the context because of the time I spent studying and just learning. However, it was very cognitive. It was very much thinking and seeing and understanding in that way. And as she says, Lectio is a way of us moving beyond just the cognitive to actually be present in the moment to how God speaks to us through the scriptures. And again, that the scriptures are reading me rather than me reading the scriptures. Instead of me interpreting the scriptures, God is interpreting me and my life through the scriptures. That became a very poignant difference for me. That literally happened to me this morning of reading a short selection of scriptures and having one part in particular lift off the page to me of God then reading me about where is my trust, can I have hope, 
and how God's pouring his love into me so that I can have that hope as I trust. God reading me in my present moment of worries and concerns, not me trying to understand the scriptures in that moment in all its context. This is Lectio. This is what sacred reading is, that God's spirit then moves into us and God is then communicating with us and we are communicating back to God. We are communing with God in the scriptures in this way. We can do that in study. Please don't hear me not imply that. I communed with God in my study of the scriptures over the years. I'm confident of that. But Lectio has a unique way of setting us at a different angle to the scriptures. I find that I'm communicating and communing with God in such a way that my desire for God is cultivated and renewed even more. But I would contend that this idea goes beyond even the early church fathers and mothers. I think, though it may not have been formalized in the pattern of Lectio Divina, as we'll talk about later and as Ruth Haley Barton goes into, I think we see this idea of sacred reading articulated by the psalmist in Psalm 119. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 119. I think what we see in Psalm 119 is inspiration for why we want to spend time in the scriptures so that our desire is cultivated and renewed. Now, for those of you who know Psalm 119 and who also are time conscious, don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing. It's 176 verses. It's the longest chapter in the scriptures. Psalm 119 is broken down into 22 stanzas based on the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza begins with a word that begins with the representative letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you might have in your Bible there then, like mine, in the fir- ahead of the first eight verses, Aleph. And then ahead of verses 9 through 16, you have Beit. And then for 17 to 24, you have Gimel. And you have the Hebrew alphabet all the way through. And this is the way it's, uh, it becomes like an acrostic, you might say. And the entire psalm is about meditating on God's words or decrees, God's law. It's all about God's word. It's a psalm about walking in relationship with God through God's word and how God's word shared in so many ways in that time, was the fertile soil for a life lived with God, a life lived communing continually with God. Now, as we read, we're going to see numerous terms for this idea of God's word. We're going to see words like commands and commandments, decrees, instructions, law, regulations, truths, and more. And so it's tempting for us to think, then, that this psalm is all about meditating on the do's and don'ts of the Bible. However, I don't think that's the case. Two reasons. First of all, I don't think that's the case because our connection to God has never been about religious obedience for the sake of obedience. It's always been about relationship with God. Let me say that again. God has never meant for our connection to God to be simply about religious observance of do's and don'ts and commands in order to obey God in appeasement of God. Not even in Israel. That was not the point of Israel. That was not the point of Abraham and his relationship with God. It's not the way God set it up. The only logical possibility in my mind for why God even ever created was in order to extend God's love that was in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving and receiving and sharing love. And out of that, God's saying, let's have more to love. And so God creates. That's the only thing that makes sense to me about why God created the world and created us. And so it wasn't for the sake of more obedience or obedience at all that God necessarily wants us or created us, even as obedience can stand as a demonstration of one's love. 
Rather, I don't think that the psalm is about cultivating our relationship with God and religious observance because of obedience. Rather, it is about us cultivating the relationship with God for who God is. But the second reason I would say this and suggest why it should not be heard as a list of do's and don'ts comes from a friend of mine who was preaching one time on the Ten Commandments. And what he said about the Ten Commandments was intriguing to me. Rather than seeing the Ten Commandments simply as a list to obey, he pointed to the notion that each command was meant to tell Israel something about who God is. That the Ten Commandments were less about what Israel was supposed to do and more about who God wanted to be to Israel. So, for example, when God said, don't steal, it was God saying, because I'm going to provide for you. And when God said, don't give yourself to other idols, it was because God was saying to them, because I'm the one true God who loves you, and these idols won't love you. And when God said, don't commit adultery, it was because God was saying, because I'm a covenant God who keeps his promises, and so you're meant to keep your promises. That the commands of Scripture are insight for us, less about what we are to do for God, though important, and more about the character of who God is to us as it was for Israel. So in light of that, then, when I hear and I see this psalm speak of commands, regulations, and decrees, I'm inclined to believe that the Jews were also seeing these commands not only for what to do, but as indicators for who God was. So throughout Psalm 119, there's the theme of the psalmist choosing and wanting and pursuing God, desiring God and seeing God's words and decrees and commands as the aid to keeping them sustained in the pursuit of the God life, sustained in communicating and communicating with God. So let's begin at verse 1 with these thoughts in mind. Psalm 119, verse 1. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Sorry, I'm reading from the NLT, and I'm not sure which translation y'all have. So if it's different, I apologize. It's different. There we go. All right. Well, I hope it works. Joyful are those, verse 2, joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Isn't that a great phrase? How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. You hear that pursuit, that longing? Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Now, that's just the first two stanzas, but I want to focus in on four verses in the middle, five verses in the middle. Look at verse 7 with me. What I want you to notice, and I'm going to highlight for you here in the middle of these two stanzas, the end of one and into the next, is what I see here as the goal for the psalmist of God's word. 
Why is the psalmist spending time in the decrees and the commands and the regulations of God? Why is the psalmist saying that they want to to own and, and live and reflect these commands? Why is the psalmist wanting to know them? Verse 7, as I learn your regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. The psalmist saying, I want to live in the way that you want me to live, God. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. We don't say, please don't give up on me, unless we have some kind of relationship that can be given up on. On to verse 9. How can a young person then stay pure? By obeying your word. What does this word pure mean? I think our minds first go to, as mine does, to moral purity obedience or holiness but i wonder if that's really what's intended here because when we hear jesus talk about purity as the good jew that he was preaching one of his early sermons or what we think might have been an early sermon in matthew 5 in the beatitudes jesus talks about how the pure in heart will see god and in that phrase in matthew 5 the pure in heart is the one who is focused committed loyal to, given their allegiance to God. In other words, those who are not idolatrous shall see God. So I wonder here in verse 9, how can a young person stay pure? How can they stay focused on God? How can they stay committed in allegiance to God and not to idols? By obeying your word. Verse 10, I have tried hard to find you. Again, the pursuit. Don't let me wander from your commands. For me, there's a sense there that the psalmist is saying, I'm going after you, God, to find you and be in relationship with you. And and how do I do that? By connecting to your commands. Not just for the sake of obeying for the do and don't, because I'm going to find you, God, when I obey. In verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The essence of sin is idolatry. That I might not sin against you, God. That I might not turn to an idol. But that I might desire you above all. The psalmist, I believe, wants to be in relationship with God. And the psalmist then uses God's word in the form of commands and laws and decrees. And whatever the psalmist had at that time written down. Because we don't know exactly what even was fully written down at that point. To nurture that relationship for God. And so it can be for us as well. But in our case, we have even more than commands and laws and decrees. Remember, this psalmist did not necessarily have the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we see that the Spirit was given to individuals. And oftentimes, sometimes, just temporarily. This is why we see about Saul, for example, as king, that the anointing comes on Saul, the spirit descends on Saul, but then we see later that it talks about how Saul as king of Israel, if you know the story, the spirit left Saul. The anointing comes to David as king. He receives that. And so then why would David say in Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from me? Why? Because David, in his time of confession, after his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba, comes to God knowing when Saul greatly sinned, the Spirit left. Dear God, dear God, don't let your Spirit leave me even though I have greatly sinned. In the Old Testament, the Spirit comes to individuals 
And it's not permanent. The Spirit's presence is not necessarily permanent. But we, as those who live after Jesus in the sending of the Spirit, have the gift of the Spirit for all of us who follow Jesus. We all have access to the Spirit. And it is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, as Paul says in Ephesians. Therefore, we have God's Word through the Scriptures, and we have more. Because of the Scriptures, we come to the Scriptures with the Spirit's help to understand, to have spiritual eyes, to understand spiritual things. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 explains this notion when he's talking to the Corinthians. And the emphasis is mine here with the italics and the underlined parts. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You cannot just hand a Bible to someone and be convinced that they're going to encounter God in that moment. That's what that's saying, I think. Unless the Spirit shows up and helps them understand. For them, it will be black ink and some red on white paper, unless you got a cool Bible that's got colored paper, unless the Spirit shows up. Because who can know the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God? So the Spirit of God has to give understanding. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world. We've received the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, Paul says, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and can't understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, through the Spirit, have the mind of Christ. So when we come to this psalm and the other parts of the Scriptures that we read, we have the Spirit, not just the commands, the laws, the decrees, the regulations. We have the Spirit opening it up to us so that we not only can understand it, but then because of the Spirit, we are in communion with God. The Word of God then is the sword of the Spirit, as Paul calls it in Ephesians, and that can divide between bone and marrow, as the author of Hebrews says. God's Word through the Scriptures and beyond, those references in Ephesians and Hebrews are not referring to this right here. They are not references to the 66 books of the Bible because they didn't have the 66 books of the Bible at that time. They were referencing to the Spirit's word that we believe and trust can come through Scripture but also is outside and beyond of Scripture as God speaks to us. And so we come to the Scriptures not only for what it says but the Spirit's interpretation. So with that New Testament lens as a backdrop for Psalm 119, I'm going to go back to the psalm, and I want us to see all that the psalmist says that communion with God in his written word offers to us. It's an amazing list. I was overwhelmed as I was preparing and just started walking through. I did not know I was going to do this in the message, but as I was just reading through, started underlining and noticing key ideas, overwhelmed with what the psalmist says we receive from God when we commune with God in the Scriptures. When we hold the Scriptures in our hands and read it and allow it to read us through the power of the Spirit 
to nurture and feed and cultivate and renew our desire for God. So I'm going to start in Psalm 119, verse 18. I'm going to point us through. Follow along with me as you like. Again, the words may be a bit different because I'm in the NLT. Verse 18, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. We receive wonderful truths. Verse 24, your laws please me. They give me wise advice. When we commune with God in the scriptures, we receive advice. 25, I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. How many of you have sat in the scriptures, read, and seen God revive your heart because you've been in the scriptures? Verse 28, I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. We receive encouragement. Verse 32, I will pursue your commands for you expand my understanding. Verse 35, make me walk along the path of your commands for that is where my happiness is found. The commands of God lead to happiness. Communing with God in the scriptures leads to happiness. Verse 36 and 37, give, give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love of money. Turn my eyes from the worthless things and give me life through your word. Your word brings the life of a desire for God. Verse 38, reassure me of your promise, reassurance. Verse 42, then I can answer those who taunt me for I trust your word. We have an answer when we commune with God in the scriptures. 43, do not snatch your word of truth from me, for your regulations are my only hope. Do you need hope? Verse 45, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. We don't think about do's and don'ts as commandments as leading to freedom often, do we? But we find freedom in the scriptures. Verse 50, 51 and 52, your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. The proud hold me in utter contempt, but I do not turn away from your instructions. I meditate on your age-old regulations, and, O oh Lord, they comfort me. Verse 63, evil people try to drag me into sin, but I am firmly anchored to your instructions. We are protected from sin and evil when we commune with God in the Scriptures. Verse 66, I believe in your commands, now teach me good judgment and knowledge. Verse 71, my suffering was good for me, for I taught, it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. We gain perspective when we commune with God in the scriptures. Verse 92, if your instructions hadn't sustained me with joy, I would have died in misery. We receive joy in the scriptures. I will never forget your commandments, for by them they give me life. Verse 98, your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Wisdom comes to us. Verse 103, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. 105, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Guidance comes to the psalmist in being in the scriptures. Verse 114, you are my refuge and my shield, for your word is my source of hope. Verse 120, I tremble in fear of you. I stand in awe of your regulations. We find awe in worship of God through the scriptures. Verse 128, each of your commandments is right. That is why I hate every false way. Rightness comes to us through the scriptures. Verse 138, your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. Trustworthiness. Verse 162, I rejoice in your word. Rejoicing and joy comes to us again in the scriptures, like one who discovers a great treasure. The scriptures, a great treasure to us. 
Verse 165, those who love your instructions have great peace. All that we receive in the scriptures that the psalmist received. Let me read this again. Just listen to this. Wonderful truth, advice, revival, encouragement, understanding, happiness, desire for God, reassurance, unanswer, hope, freedom, comfort, protection, good judgment, knowledge, perspective, joy, life, wisdom, sweetness, guidance, hope, again, awe and worship, rightness, trustworthiness, rejoicing, a great treasure, peace. I would take that list for my life right now. And the psalmist, I believe, is saying, I receive all of this and more as I dwell on your commands, laws, and decrees and commune with you, God, because of that. And on top of all that, we receive, as we read in verse 7 through 11, living a life with a pure heart, a heart centered on relationship with God, kept from idols. Our desire for God above all other desires is cultivated through our engagement in the Scriptures. Our desire for God is cultivated when we engage in the Scriptures. Because it's there that we commune and we communicate with God and the Scriptures bring renewal to us. And so, my friends, if we want to continually be renewed as disciples, desiring God, if we want to live attentively in the here and now with God, we're invited to commune and communicate with God through the Scriptures. But without it, we run the risk again of desiring everything but God because of all that this world has to steal our hearts away. So I want to take a few moments and invite us to practice Lectio Divina together. To do this practice that for some of you may already be a core practice to your communion with God and for others might be new. To take this time to do this where we then allow Scripture to read us, interpret us, and help us hear from God and listen. We're going to look together at Psalm chapter 1. I've chosen Psalm 1, 1 through 3. It's going to be on the screen, but you can also close your eyes and just listen if you want to. If you want to write things down as we go, you're invited to do that. If you want to hold it in your head, that is fine, your heart, that is fine as well. But I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to guide us through the four steps of Lectio as Ruth Haley Barton articulates at the end of her chapter in Sacred Rhythms, where we will listen for a word or a phrase, then we will see how it connects to life, then we will respond listening to what God wants to say to us, and then rest in what God has for us. So let me invite you to take a posture that you are most comfortable with physically and uh, that you then can center yourself most focused in to God's Spirit in this time. I'm going to read this passage two times slowly. And I'm going to invite you, first of all, to listen for a word or a phrase that you think God is addressing to you today. Listen for a word or a phrase addressed to you. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. 
Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. What word or phrase do you sense is being addressed to you that strikes you? Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Now that you have a word or phrase, listen as I read again for the way that this passage connects with your life. What in your life right now needs to hear this word? Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. What in your life right now needs to hear your word or phrase? As I read the passage once more, what is your response? What do you sense God wants you to do with what he's given you through this psalm today? Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do.
in this final movement of Lectio, we rest. So as I read a final time, I invite you to rest in what you have heard. Rest in God's presence, in his word to you. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Father, we thank you for this gift of your spirit to speak to us. We thank you for the gift of your spirit to give us understanding of the scriptures, of your words to us, understanding of your story, understanding of each unique book within the scriptures that is given to us to understand and learn more of who you are, who we are to be in light of that. And most of all, to draw us into deeper communion with you, that our desire would be for you above all. So I pray that for each of us, we would feel the draw that the scriptures have because of your spirit to find the life that they give, to find our way pure, focused, committed, seeing you for who you are, knowing you for who you are, committed to you because you are God and there is no other. In Jesus' name.